Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 4 this afternoon. My watch was a half hour slow this morning, which is why we were late. And I don't think it's right now, so I'll do my best, okay? Uh, 1 Kings chapter 4. And the context is that Solomon has already been set apart and ordained by David to be the king of Israel. And um, we saw last time the beginning of his reign and what great wisdom God gave him at his request uh, to run the kingdom, to make it efficient and safe, and uh, also to make judgments uh, between people. And we, if you remember uh, last time, there were these two women that came to Solomon with one baby. And one said it was hers, and the other said, no, it was mine. No one could figure out how to resolve it. So Solomon called for a sword and told the man to cut the baby in two so each of them could have some of the baby. And that seemed to be uh, a rather uh, extreme measure of judgment. But Solomon knew what was in the heart, in the heart of man, and he knew that the true mother would say, let her keep the baby and I'll go without. And in doing that, it was revealed the true mother whom Solomon gave to her, gave the baby to. And that kind of wisdom was um, spread throughout the land and even into other nations. No one had heard of anything so wise. And so we pick up in chapter 4 when Solomon had established himself as king and a wise king. We have in the first few verses, chapter 4, now King Solomon was king over all Israel. And then it lists all of his particular servants and deputies and, and um, the various officials of his kingdom through verse 19. And in verse 20, it reads, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. The river is the Euphrates River, which is now in Iran, I mean Iraq. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines. That was on the Mediterranean coast and to the border of Egypt in the south. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened pow. For he had dominion over everything west of the river, from Tipshaw even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river, and he had peace on all sides about him, around about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, 
every man under his vine and his fig tree. From Dan, that would be in the north, to Beersheba in the south, all the days of Solomon. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, that would be throughout all of Israel, 12,000 horsemen, and these 12 deputies provided for King Solomon and all which who came to King Solomon's table each in his month. There were, up in the first verses, <coughs> Solomon appointed 12 men in different parts of Israel to gather enough uh, provision, food, things of, like, of that nature, grain, to provide for Solomon's household and the city of Jerusalem, as well as his armies near Jerusalem for one month a year. So it was spread out through various parts of Israel, not just by the tribes, but 12 places, 12 men, to gather those materials to supply Solomon and his household and his, um, the city of Jerusalem, his soldiers, his servants, and so forth, um, with proper food one year, I mean one month a year. So they brought barley and straw for the horses and swift steeds to the place where it should be, each according to his charge. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, Heman, Calco, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, that you kept your word. Solomon requested wisdom and you gave it to him. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to see that, that this chapter displays all the glory of Solomon, not only in his wisdom, but in his possessions, in his armies, in his, his court, his food provisions, that his kingdom, from Egypt all the way over to the Euphrates River, was the greatest land kingdom that Israel ever had <clears throat> and that it was in peace all the days of Solomon. It was a time of prosperity and blessing. So help us, we pray, as we consider this chapter, what we can learn here concerning our own salvation that you've given us so graciously how you call us to maintain our hearts to remember what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ each day. 
and to have hope and confidence that you will provide all our needs in the kingdom of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you older ones might remember when I moved here, I started a garden. Uh, Poor old Pastor Tom had to tend it when he was our intern. But I also planted some some grape vines. I planted muscadine vines because Debbie loves muscadines and scuppernines. And, And so it grew and I tried to fertilize it and care for it. And um, as it grew, it started to bear fruit. But then um, the birds of the air came and they started picking at the muscadines. And I couldn't get get up early enough in the morning to get out there and collect them before the birds got them. So the vine didn't produce very much and because we would travel and go see our children at certain times, a week at a time, the heat of summer and the lack of rain. Ultimately, the vine died. So I pulled it up and I removed it because it bore no fruit. God calls Israel his vine. He watered it. He fertilized it. He planted her in the land of Canaan waiting for her to bear fruit of holiness, personal love to God and man, personal obedience uh, to the commandments of God as a nation, um, having pure worship according to his commandments, but Israel by and by bore no fruit. So he removed her. First Israel, the ten tribes in the north to Assyria, and then the two tribes in the south to Babylon. And yet in the process of his judgment upon Israel, removing her as a vine from his land, he promised to bring her back and plant her again, which he did. After 70 years in Babylon, uh, God restored the remnant of the people of Israel um, to Judah and Jerusalem again, calling her to bear fruit to God. And he promised at that time in the prophets that when he restored Israel, that he would also bless her greatly more than just um, figs and grapes. He would bring a time when the blessings that Israel yearned for, where every man sits under his own vine and under his own fig tree to shade him from the sun and to rejoice in the blessings that God had given him. At that time, a seed of Judah would come forth He would be given the scepter of Israel to be king. And he himself would bear fruit for God. That's the overall teaching of the vine in the Old Testament to be fulfilled in the New Testament when Jesus said, I am the true vine, not the false vine of Israel, but I myself am the true vine. 
and those who abide in me shall bear fruit. So we, we look at this, this figure or this metaphor or this symbol of a vine in 1 Kings 4, verse 25. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, that is under Solomon's reign, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. And this phrase, every man sitting under his vine and his fig tree, is not just here in this verse. It is a theme that's interwoven throughout the Old Testament of the greatest prosperity one could think of is from Israel's captivity in Egypt to coming into the promised land yet still having to fight wars to win the land, to be free from her enemies. The most peaceful idea of Israel, of God's blessing, was every man sitting under his own vine and fig tree, just picking the fruit and eating it. Isaiah says also watching the children play in the street. It was like a big breath let out. This is it. This is the life I've wanted. And we have here that this happened under Solomon's reign. So uh, this afternoon I want us to see how this theme of the vine and the fig tree and sitting under the vine and the fig tree is a, a metaphor, a figure, almost a parable in how God treated Israel in the Old Testament. Now, in, <clears throat> first of all, we find in Psalm 80, verse 8, that God chose Israel as his vine to put in his vineyard and to plant her there to bear fruit for him. And that fruit would have been holiness, God-likeness, Love to God, love to one's neighbor, love for one another. In Psalm 80, verse 8, it says, You removed a vine from Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. And so Israel was a vine to be planted in the land of Canaan. It's like God is a great vine dresser or a vine grower. Um, who, who takes his most precious vine and plants it and gives it blessing and waters it and fertilizes it and gives it everything it needs to grow. But Israel did not grow as a vine and bear fruit. And so God, in his justice and the Sinai covenant they were under, brought judgment upon Israel. The second thing we see in the use of the term vine or the idea of a vine or a fig tree is that Israel itself, I mean Canaan itself, was to be a land of vines and fig trees. Deuteronomy 8 verse 8 says, a land of wheat and barley it will be of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, it, the land of olive oil and honey. This was how God described the 
promised land. And if you remember, uh, Joshua and Caleb were sent from Beersheba into the promised land. In, I mean, in, into the promised land. And they found in the valley of Eshcol, this was right when they came out of Egypt, they found these beautiful grape vines and they, they took some of the clusters of grapes and they were so heavy and so large that they had to carry it on a pole and brought it back to the people of Israel and showed them that the land was uh, fruitful and God had chosen a great place for them even though it was full of giants and armies. And the people said, we're not going in there. Even though God had promised and he showed them the land flowing with milk and honey and grapevines and fig trees, they didn't trust God enough to go on into the land and let him clear out the Canaanites and be settled. So God punished them. And they went about in the wilderness for 40 years, barely getting by. And while they were there, they criticized God for not providing what they wanted and needed. But they had first refused it. They didn't trust in him and submit to him. But finally, God in his mercy brought them under Joshua uh, to the promised land. And he fulfilled his promise. They came into a land flowing with milk and honey. And God gave them everything he had promised. So Israel was given all these things. The vines, the fig trees, the milk and the honey, so that God's promise to them would come to fruition. And some people do not believe that's happened yet. But the words of Joshua... And Joshua 21:43 says, when they brought them, Israel into the promised land, God, uh, so the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. And the Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Now, he would have done that when they first came out of the promised land, but they did not trust him. They lived in unbelief. And the Lord finally had mercy and brought them into the land anyway. That's how merciful he is. Up to the point of crossing the Jordan River and into the promised land, they still were worshiping idols instead of the only true God as they should. Yet God kept his word, as he always does, whether it's for judgment or whether it's for mercy. And so it says in Joshua 21:45, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And that's because God keeps his word. And so in 1 Kings 4.25, which we're looking at this evening, so Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan to 
Beersheba all the days of Solomon. For 40 years, God gave them this peace, this prosperity, even though they didn't deserve it at all. Truly, it was of grace and undeserved mercy and kindness that God blessed Israel at all. For even in the promised land, they continued to worship false gods and idols and fertility gods. All the while, God's prophets calling them to repent and return to the Lord. But in Solomon's day, at least in an outward physical manifestation of a nation, there was peace. There was prosperity. Every man could work in the fields and woman in as well. And when they finished the day, they could sit down under their vines, their fig trees, watch the children play in the street, breathe a breath of thanksgiving and pick up and take a fruit, a fruit from God and eat it. Fourth, even after fulfilling his promises, after giving them these blessings, Israel rejected God's blessings by worshiping the vines and the fruit and the figs instead of God. Hosea 10, 1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself, not for God, but for himself. The more his fruit, that is, the more he prospers, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. In other words, God blessed Israel with so much and instead of using that to worship God, to bless others with, to give thanks and praise to God alone, she took advantage of God's blessings upon her and turned to idols of the Canaanites, fertility gods and goddesses on every hill and offered sacrifices to these false gods even to the point of offering their own babies through the fire to keep their prosperity going the next year because what they really worshiped was their own stomachs, their own things, instead of God who gave them to them. And that is called idolatry. It's a violation of the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. They worship things that are created instead of the God who creates things. This is a great danger. Hosea 2.12 says, I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. Who are the lovers of Israel that they're talking about? Ashtoreth, Baal, 
Milcom, false gods. My lovers have given me, they loved these idols. They loved the material blessings that they attributed to the idols when it should have been attributed to God. They did not humble themselves to God in spite of the fact that he had blessed them from the day they left Egypt and especially when they entered the promised land and settled them there and gave peace to them and then under David won security in the land and under Solomon the breadth, the greatest kingdom Israel had ever had, they had peace and prosperity and they sat under their vines and under their fig trees and watched their children in the street and they were very content with what they had and so they continued to worship the false gods. Now what's the lesson in this turning of Israel away from God and to and to worship Baal Peor and Ashtoreth and the other gods in the land? The lesson is that Israel received all of God's blessings, undeserved, every day, and was ungrateful to God. And instead of worshiping Him in spirit and truth, having their hearts circumcised to cut off fleshly living and live holy unto God, instead of worshiping Him in spirit and truth, They took the material blessings God had given them and gave them to idols. What's the lesson here? Though a man should gain the whole world and lose his own soul, he has nothing. One of the problems in the early church was that after being established and persecuted and being established, thrown into jail, possessions taken in the first century from many, many Christians, many of them burned upon crosses in Rome. they eventually found some freedom and some prosperity. And so Paul in 1 Timothy wrote to Christians, if you'll turn there with me. Chapter 6. that there will be those that enter into the church that try to profit off of the church, to preach heresy, false doctrines, to gain a following and to uh, gain money from the people. And he says in verse 3 of 1 Timothy 6, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, 
those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. And here we see that a church must be built upon sound doctrine, sound teaching, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And if someone comes in and starts to teach things that are contrary to or not in conformity to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles, he knows nothing. Because Christ's doctrine always brings one to conformity to godliness. The goal of our instruction is love. Love to God, love to one's neighbor, love to one another, love to our enemy. And if the teaching does not lead to those things and does not conform to the words of Jesus and his apostles written in the New Testament, even if they claim to have prophecies today and predictions and special words to you, we're to disregard those things and stay with the words of Jesus and his apostles. Because the faith has once for all been delivered to the saints. And the Bible is the word of God that we have. But anyway, anyone that doesn't conform in verse 4, he's conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, that is the words of Jesus and the apostles, who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. They're trying to gain money and reputation and power through teaching wrong doctrine. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. We need to remember that as Christians. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. We shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, doesn't mean they get it, some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. That means to think of the consummated kingdom of Jesus, the glory that God has destined us for, to be like him in this fullness, to love, only love coming from our hearts instead of hatefulness and deceit and lying and sin. You can't sin in heaven because you have been conformed to the image of Christ. And love abounds all around. 
fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What happened with Israel is that she became materialistic. Having received food, clothing, and shelter in abundance from God, she forgot God. And she turned to the false gods of the Canaanites who told them that if they will just bow down and sacrifice to Ashtoreth or Baal, these fertility goddesses, they would have a good crop next year. And so they focused on the things that they could touch and taste and feel, and they forgot God. In the parable of the sower, one of the soils, if you remember, was the thorny soil. And Jesus the sower went out and cast seeds onto the heart that had that had thorns in it. And these thorns were the worries of the world, the desire for other things, and riches. And when the word fell upon the ground, the seed from the gospel started to grow, but then the thorns around it started to grow. The worries of the world, the desire for riches and other things grew up and choked the word where it could not bear fruit. At first they looked as if they were following Christ, but in time they turned to the things of the world and it choked the word and proved to be a false conversion. So it was with Israel. God took away their blessed vines and fig trees in the judgment for their sins and took them away into Assyria and then Babylon in the south so that they didn't have any more vines and fig trees. Psalm 105 says he struck down their vines and also their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. It will come about in Isaiah 7:23, in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. We must start only in Christ, but we must remain only in Christ. All the way to the end every day. We have been granted entrance into grace, the kingdom of grace in which we continually stand. And we're not to turn anymore to the things of this world that offer a false promise that can never deliver happiness. Instead, we're to turn to the true vine and to be joined to Him as a branch and bear fruit to God. No longer living for the things of this world, the people of this world, but only living unto God who has worked in us to bear fruit of Christ-likeness and holiness, the fruit of the Spirit. This is where we are to focus as Christians. 
Now joined into Christ, we bear the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and meekness and faithfulness and self-control because these things are God-like. They are Christ-like. And God warns even in Hebrews 6, in the epistle of warning, that if you profess to believe the things of Christ, but do not bear fruit, he cuts you away as a branch and burns you. You prove to be a false professor of Christ. But Christ is the true vine. In Genesis 49, 11, the prophecy concerning Judah and what would, uh, of the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of, of Jacob, Judah, his son, would be the one from which the scepter comes to rule all of Israel. Genesis 49, 11 says of this, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes are in the blood of grapes. Even there, that far back, Jesus Christ is predicted. Hosea 14, 7 says, those who live in his shadow will again rise again, raise grain, excuse me, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon, speaking of Christ. Zechariah 3.10, In that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Zechariah 8.12, For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit, the land will yield its produce, and the heavens will give their due and I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. The promise was in Babylon, sitting by the Euphrates River in bondage, made to sing the Psalms of Israel for entertainment to the Babylonians. They were promised that they would come back to Judah and Jerusalem and God brought that to pass in 587 B.C. I mean 522 B.C. And as a result of that, he protected them until Messiah came. I am the true vine, Jesus said. And my father is the vine dresser. Everyone who abides in me bears fruit. The idea of the new heaven and the new earth. Those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance from their own sin and turning to him to, to root out those sins in their life and to put on love and grace and toward God and man. All of those who come to him and abide in him will bear fruit. And the new heaven and the new earth will be like sitting under one's vine and fig tree eternally. 
That's the figure Isaiah has for heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. Luke twenty-two eighteen. For I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. At the Lord's Supper, Jesus took, took the bread and, and took the cup. But he says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. That is the eternal kingdom to come where every man sits under his vine and under his fig tree. Michael 4.1 says, And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream into it. And then it says in verse 4, Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of the host has spoken. All of this through Jesus Christ, the true vine, who came and shed his blood upon the cross to make atonement for the sins of his people and to promise them as the picture of paradise was in the Old Testament, to promise them that everyone will sit under his own vine and his fig tree. Jesus' kingdom is a true spiritual fulfillment of what the physical promises were to Israel. And when we sit under his vine, it will be eternally. And his fig tree, he will sit with us. And we will enter into an eternal existence of joy and contentment and peace, bearing the fruit of Christ perfectly. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every one of us here who love Christ were perfect in our joy, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and meekness? and faithfulness and self-control, so it will be one day. So God kept his promise to Solomon and blessed Israel as promised, but she did not bear the fruit that God sought. But now one greater than Solomon is here, Jesus said. He is the one that can bear fruit. He's the one who can fertilize the vine. He's the one who waters the vine. He's the living water. He's the one that enables us to bear fruit that brings glory to God instead of taking advantage of the goodness of God in our life and using his blessings for our own sins. Are you ungrateful to God? I think it would be measured by whether the blessings God's brought to you materially move you toward greater Christ-likeness and faithfulness or move you away. And if those blessings that he's given you that are material but also eternal 
cause you to presume upon God and keep sinning, there's something you don't understand about God's salvation. And you need to flee to Christ and break off worshiping the idols of things and people and money and pleasure and turn to Jesus Christ in whom are all the pleasures of God. And if you're a Christian and you find yourself in the prosperity of your life in this land and not noticing, not giving thanks to God for every morsel of food, every breath of life that He controls, you need to repent and turn from your self-centeredness and the worship of idols to Jesus Christ again. Even a Christian who sins, he receives as he did the first time and forgives and blesses and helps and promises to bring us to a place where in the fullest measure sinners may sit under their own um, vine and their own fig tree and be thankful. Do not turn back to materialism. Do not let the things of this world, the people of this world, cause you to neglect God's word and truth and prayer. Do not let these things neglect the pursuit of holiness for a mess of pottage. If we put as much energy into learning God's blessings and word and truth and righteousness more than we do in the things that perish, we would all be further along the path to Christ-likeness. But that's the challenge to the Christian, to fix our eyes on Jesus and the eternal glory that he shed his blood for us to experience. And every day, look unto him and believe again the salvation that he's purchased for us and the love that he has for us that will not change and believe once again in the place that he's preparing for us. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. There's no reason for us to worship the things of the world or the people of the world when we have greater blessings for eternity in the face of Jesus Christ. So let us turn to him and turn away from either the love of things or the ungratefulness of attitude to God and once again embrace Jesus Christ and all the riches of grace that are found in him. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who 
who live on a mess of pottage, things that are of this world and the people and their attitudes of this world. I pray that you would show them even today how futile such attempts are for true happiness and blessedness and that you would set before him the, them the cross of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins to purchase for us not only the forgiveness of sins but the destiny of an eternal glorious place with him that we would no longer be influenced by the things of this world but rather that we would keep our eye on you Lord Jesus and bear fruit of godliness now forgive us of our sins once again help us to remember that your forgiveness comes through blood and that your promises the promises that come from your resurrection are true and lasting and eternal and are far greater in joy and pleasure than anything this world has to offer so forgive us of our sins and help us to look forward to the day when we see you face to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.